Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants will be in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time, to ask a question, press a star followed by the number one on your phone and mute your phone and record your name when prompted. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. May I introduce your speaker for today, Michael Uko. Please go ahead. Great. Thank you very much. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to those of you around the world, and thank you for joining this press call where we're going to be giving a preview of what to expect at COP23. I am Michael Oko. I'm the Communications Director here at WRI, and for those who are not as familiar with us, WRI is a global research organization working at the nexus of the environment, human well-being, and economic development. We have 750 staff working in eight global offices with projects and partnerships spanning more than 50 countries worldwide. Today we are hosting this call, which will be featuring WRI's President Andrew Steer and some of our top experts ahead of COP23, which is taking place in Bonn, Germany, from November 6th to 17th. WRI will have a strong delegation going to the COP this year, where we'll use our independence analysis to provide advice to negotiators. We'll be launching new research and new data platforms, and we'll be working to help leaders in government, business, and civil society to support ambitious global, national, and subnational climate action. Very pleased to be joined today by several of our top experts, and we'll hear brief comments from them, and that will be followed by a Q&A session with reporters. So today we'll hear first from Andrew Steer, who's WRI's president and CEO. Then we'll hear from Paolo Caballero, who is our global director of our climate program. Following Paolo, we'll hear from Christina Chan. Christina directs our climate resilience practice. And then we'll hear from Leo Martinez-Diaz, who is the global director of our Sustainable Finance Center. Just before we start, I want to remind folks that we will hear, and we will have a recording of this call available online afterwards, and you can follow up with me or any of my colleagues, Reese Gerholt or Ali Friedman, if you have follow-up questions. So without further ado, let me please turn the call over to Andrew Steer. Andrew. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, but this year's uh, COP in Bonn is, is really all about momentum. Fiji is the president, as you know, of this year's COP. Um, first time ever that a small island nation has presided over these negotiations. Um, under Fiji, there will be a, a strong emphasis on protecting the vulnerable, uh, especially the small island states. But obviously, recent events in uh, uh, hurricanes and extreme weather events, uh, strongest hurricane ever measured in the Atlantic, more rain coming from a hurricane than ever before measured, more damage from hurricanes all in the last six months. This obviously is an important backdrop. Um, but two years after Paris, we're in a situation where there's really all to play for. We, we at WRI monitor what's going on in the so-called NDCs, uh, we set up something called an NDC partnership with 65 countries and 10 international institutions, and we're, we're really trying to measure how things are going, and they're going pretty well. We actually haven't seen any backtracking um, that we might have seen when after the U.S. pulled out um, of Paris. Uh, but nonetheless, the stakes now are so high because in the coming two years, we don't only need to see the NDCs being implemented, we also need uh, to see a rising ambition. So this, this COP's actually more important than most people realize. Basically, it's sort of useful to think of two things going on. There's the international process, 196 countries hammering out sort of, you know, details of uh, the so-called rule book. 
But then parallel to that, obviously, is the real world, what's happening out there. And if you look back over the last 20 years, sometimes it's the negotiators that have been leading and sometimes the real world's been leading. Leading up to Paris, the real world uh, was going faster than the negotiators. And when Paris came, in some ways, signals came very strongly and that nudged the private sector and investors actually to move forward. Um, Right now, um, there's so much going on out there in the real world that I think negotiators are going to Paris and they're going to receive very strong messages that actually it is possible to move from today's high-carbon, low-efficiency world economy to tomorrow's high-efficiency, low-carbon world economy. I mean, we have more than 300 companies, international companies, um, that have now committed to science-based targets, essentially decarbonizing through the first half of this century. 7,500 cities now have committed to supporting climate action at a fairly ambitious level. Renewable energy has never been cheaper. There are more places on the Earth's surface now where renewable energy is cheaper than than fossil fuels than ever before. We're seeing um, prices of three cents a kilowatt hour in in, in several countries now. So it's quite quite an exciting time. Obviously, uh, the U.S. is, um, is uh, is an outlier politically. In a, in, a, in a very real way. Um, and one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking on is, is really sort of the intellectual journey. Um, Mr. Trump has given data based upon really bad um, economic advice. When he pulled out of Paris, um, he said it was going to cost the U.S. economy $2.5 trillion over 10 years. That's based upon extremely old-fashioned, rigid economics. Uh, we've looked at those data. We have our own analysis that actually show that smart climate policies lead to more efficiency, more technology, and longer-term confidence signals for the private sector. Combining these, as the OECD has shown, as our own new climate economy has shown, actually can lead to more growth. So there's there's an intellectual um, battleground uh, going on um, right uh, right now. But, I mean, clearly... Um, what is happening here in this country at the subnational level is some pretty exciting things. One of the things that uh, America's pledge will be uh, will be publishing uh, this weekend is analysis that we have done um, and Rocky Mountain Institute have done, basically looking at the extent to which at the subnational level, states, cities, utilities, and the private sector actually can compensate for the absence of a federal policy on climate change in this um, country. Um, so look, uh, we, we see a picture that is uh, broadly encouraging. Um, the, the improvements are happening, but they simply are not happening at the pace required. The difference between two degrees and well below two degrees is very substantial. We need to see a peaking by 2020 or by 2022 at the latest. This is going to be extremely difficult. So in a way, this COP is actually more important than most people think about. And it's terribly important that heads of delegation, negotiators, and those who are actually involved in the real world making decisions go to Bonn and really sort of step up their level of ambition. Let me turn over now to Paula to tell us what they're actually going to try to decide. Paula. Thank you very much, Andrew, Um, and good morning and evening to everybody. We are looking at COP23, as Andrew says, as part of 
a much larger journey that we're undertaking in which um, Bonn really becomes a very decisive milestone. Let's remember that at the core of the Paris Agreement is the five-year cycles of progressive ambition. This is what the world actually signed on to in order to close the emissions gap and maintain an inhabitable planet. And we're actually right now in the middle of the very first one of those five-year cycles. So this is really the most remarkable and ambitious journey we've ever embarked on as a species, because this is a once in an eon opportunity to redefine our development. And the COP that starts in just 10 days is a very key moment in that journey. What needs to happen in Bonn to move forward and to make us go faster in that kind of steely determination that we have seen already at the G20, at the G7, in the African Ministerial Conference on Environment already this year? So that momentum uh, relies on the fact that the world needs to get clear rules and a very well-defined playing field. At Bonn, negotiators need to make very tangible and constructive progress on the Paris Agreement's rulebook, or what is known in the negotiations as the implementation guideline. This is what will pull, put the agreement really into motion when these rules are adopted at COP24 next year. So we're very much looking to uh, very strong leadership by Poland next year to get the to culminate this effort that's going to be taking place in the negotiations of this year. Think of it as um, like constructing a highway. The negotiators will be paving the way to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. They will be designing the road signs and the markers that we need to use so that countries know what the journey looks like, how to go there, and how fast to get there. Very concretely, the parties will need to define what are the central decision points and figure out options for coming to an agreement at COP24. These include very key issues, including around transparency, for example, reporting, compliance. And this matters because if I can put it simply, what we count, we can cut. And progressive ambition that is needed relies on very clear rules of the game so that everybody plays ball. Secondly, at COP23, we will be kicking off the first stock-taking process under the Paris Agreement. That stock-taking is a core part of that five-year cycle of ambition. And it gets kicked off by the Fiji COP presidency, who has named it the 2018 Tanaloa Dialogue. And this will be a year-long process for countries to assess global progress towards bending the GHG emissions curve. Are we going fast enough? Are we being decisive enough? For the Fiji COP presidency, this is going to be the lodestar of their presidency. And we are looking to Poland as the next uh, COP presidency in 2018 to maintain and to take that leadership uh, further. But 2018 is going to be decisive in many ways. Countries will need to step up and start to publicly commit to enhancing their climate plans by 2020. As Andrew Sears said, this is a year that brings together the real world and the negotiators in very powerful ways. There will be a need to send very decisive market signals, reinforce the geopolitics that we saw play out this year, and continue to spur that momentum and that movement towards zero carbon and climate resilient future. During the first week of COP, WRI will be releasing new research that explores precisely how countries can step up their NDCs. And obviously, as many expect, there's a call for stronger emission targets, 
but there are also important opportunities to expand the scope of their targets or declare their intention to overachieve an existing target amongst many of the options that we have identified. Importantly, speaking of that real world, the Global Climate Summit that's going to be taking place in California in September will also be important in recognizing that states, cities, and businesses play an ever-increasing and more defining role in this fight against climate change. Some of the key elements that will be defined at the COP23 have to do very specifically around adaptation and around finance. So I'm going to be turning to my two colleagues, Christina Chan and Leo Martinez, in a minute. But let me just finalize by underscoring the urgency of ramping up global effort in the next uh, few years. Next year, a decisive milestone will be the IPCC special report on 1.5, and it will demonstrate yet again that we have less than three years left to bend the trajectory of emissions downward to avoid the very worst and most catastrophic impacts of climate change, impacts that we are already seeing today and that will be exacerbating. So in the climate negotiating last year in Morocco, we saw really steely determination to advance climate action regardless of any obstacle. What we're seeing now is an opportunity to enhance and to strengthen that journey. So with that, why don't I turn it to Christina Chan who will speak to the adaptation component of the negotiations and of COP23. Thanks, Paula. Um, What Paula and Andrew have talked about, uh, momentum, urgency, increasing ambition, I would say, without a doubt, the the best way to help vulnerable communities and countries deal with the impacts of climate change is to increase ambition on mitigation. That said, they're already dealing with these impacts, and so we need to help them manage these impacts. Um, As we all know, record storms have devastated parts of Florida and Texas here in the United States. Irma and Maria also destroyed Puerto Rico's power grid. 75% of that country is still in the dark. Irma also flattened Barbuda, literally flattened it. 95% of the buildings there have been destroyed, leaving 60% of people homeless. In South Asia, extreme flooding this year has killed more than 1,200 people and also affected 41 million people. Um, Taking the extreme events aside and events aside, we're also thinking about and talking about slow onset events uh, like sea level rise. And for countries, low-lying countries and islands like, for example, Kiribati in the Pacific, climate change poses an existential threat. Um, so we need to mitigate, but we also, these impacts are happening now and they're, 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 they're coming at us. With this, this COP being hosted by Fiji, it will no doubt prioritize the importance of helping vulnerable countries and communities manage these impacts. What Paris did was it elevated the importance of adaptation and addressing loss and damage. We now have a global goal on adaptation to which all countries will contribute, and there's also a call for greater collaboration to address loss and damage associated with the impacts of climate change. I would say at COP23 there are three things that we should be looking out for on adaptation and loss and damage. The first is an uh, an important set of issues around deciding the details of how and what parties will communicate in terms of their adaptation priorities, how we'll recognize the efforts of developing countries as they adapt, how to assess the effectiveness and adequacy of adaptation action and support, and also ways to mobilize more support for adaptation. The Adaptation Committee and the Least Developed Countries Expert Group will be making recommendations on these issues uh, to the COP this year. 
The second is uh, we need to make a decision once and for all on the adaptation fund. This is an important issue for many vulnerable countries on how to create a permanent link between this specialized adaptation fund and the Paris Agreement. And finally, third, we need to make progress on loss and damage. The Executive Committee of the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage, they just approved their second work plan. And while there's no need for parties to approve this work plan at the COP, I think we can expect that there will be negotiations over it given the importance of the issue. The key thing here will be to make headway in building constructive approaches to loss and damage so that vulnerable communities that vulnerable communities will face, um, both in terms of extreme events as well as long-term impacts like sea level rise and loss of agricultural productivity. My team and I will be in Bonn, and we hope to use our expertise and, and experience to be helpful. For example, we're developing a framework to help countries and funders understand and put finance toward transformative adaptation to address long-term impacts in the ag sector. And we're launching a, it will be launching soon a GIS data platform called Prep Data that will help planners and policymakers visualize climate risks so that they can make better decisions in the context of climate change. And with that, um, I'll turn to Leo on the on the finance piece. Uh, thanks so much, Christina. Uh, on the finance piece, uh, obviously, this will be a key part of the COP, both inside the negotiations and outside. Financing is crucial in order to implement the NDCs, and uh, now everybody's going to be trying to figure out uh, how to mobilize the resources, both public and private, to make it happen. Uh, let me uh, tell you about two things. One is the context, uh, what's going on outside in the real world, as Andrew put it, and then I'll tell you a bit about what's going on inside uh, on the finance front. Uh, in terms of the context, uh, there's a few data points that are uh, mostly encouraging, uh, but there are some areas for, uh, for further challenge. Uh, first, the multilateral development banks uh, have been making important contributions to climate finance. They recently put out their report that looks at how much climate finance they mobilized in 2016, and that number came out to $27 billion, uh, for that year. Uh, and that's uh, good. That's uh, the second highest uh, recorded since the numbers started uh, being collected, uh, and uh, it's certainly an encouraging sign that continues the momentum. At the same time, uh, they're still some ways away from their targets that were set um, before Paris, and uh, there are things that have to be done to accelerate the flow. And we have a blog on exactly what they can do if, if you're interested. Uh, on the Green Climate Fund, obviously a very important uh, part of the system and has a lot of political visibility. Uh, there, there's some uh, encouraging news. The um, fund has now approved uh, projects worth about $3 billion just under $3 billion, uh, and they have started disbursements uh, now in earnest, so now they have uh, exceeded $100 million of uh, disbursements. Uh, of course, the key question is how to make this fund more efficient uh, to make sure it can uh, continue to get money uh, out the door into good projects uh, more quickly uh, and to ensure that uh, countries can have access to the fund uh, more readily. On the, on the private side of the, of the house, if you will, uh, we have, uh, I think, a good story, which you'll hear about a lot, I'm sure, which is the green bonds market. This is a market that didn't exist uh, a few years ago, and now already uh, this year uh, we're expected to see over $120 billion of issuance uh, from many different uh, types of issuers. Uh, and that is, of course, still very small compared to the overall size of the fixed uh, income uh, sphere. Uh, but nonetheless, it's an encouraging sign that this market is, is alive. Uh, sustainable investing uh, is the other story that I think is worth keeping an eye on. 
you see increasingly the large asset owners and asset managers uh, care about environmental factors and climate risk and opportunity. Uh, and uh, there's a number of developments on this front, but of course more can be done. Uh, finally, on the inside uh, of the negotiations, uh, some of the key points you'll hear about. One is the adaptation fund, which uh, Christina mentioned. Uh, and the question is, how do we increase uh, financing for adaptation? Uh, and what are the right vehicles to deliver that financing? The second is what I would call the Trump gap. Uh, as you're aware, uh, the uh, president has made clear that he will not uh, fulfill the, uh, the commitment made by the Obama administration to the Green Climate Fund. Our sense is that this will not, of course, be helpful uh, to climate finance. But nevertheless, uh, there are ways to uh, try to get more out of the money that is currently in the system. And while the Trump cap is certainly not helpful, it is certainly not catastrophic. There are things that can be done to, to mitigate that. Uh, and finally, uh, the $100 billion uh, target that was set uh, at Copenhagen, this, of course, is a kind of a rough measure of where we are in terms of the financial commitments. Uh, I think, uh, on the whole, uh, the uh, numbers suggest that we're about two-thirds of the way to the $100 billion by 2020 and that is uh, very encouraging, but we still have a ways to go. Uh, we believe that the 100 billion target is achievable, but that it will take uh, more work uh, and more uh, effort, and we have uh, a few ideas that we can share with you on how we can help get there. Michael. Great, thank you so much, uh, Leo, Christina, Paula, and Andrew, for that uh, wide and deep sweep across COP23, um, lots of fodder there. Operator. Um, do you want to uh, let reporters know how they can get in the queue to ask a question? Certainly. Participants, we will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, press a star followed by the number one on your phone. And meet your phone and record your first and last name clearly at the prompt. Your name is required to introduce your question. To cancel your question, you may press a star followed by the number two. Once again, participants, to ask a question, press a star one on your phone and record your name. At this time, speakers, we have one question in queue. One moment, please, as I get the name. Our first question comes from Lisa Friedman. Your line is now open. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for doing this this morning. Can you hear me okay? Hi, Lisa. Yep, we Hi. hear you. Okay. Thanks for calling in. Thanks. Can you talk a little bit more about the role the U.S. will play? We keep hearing that they're... They've been constructive. They're being constructive. What does that What does that mean? And and if you could be kind of as specific as possible, I mean, what positions are they going to take on certain issues? Um, have they done any briefings with NGO community as they have in the past, or or businesses for that matter, if you know? Because um, they certainly haven't with us. Okay. Well, we will be as specific as we can. Obviously, the administration speaks for itself. But, Andrew, do you want to comment sort of on, on some of our insights regarding the U.S. Uh, delegation? Um, hi, Lisa. Um, I, I'm sure you are as aware as we are of sort of who's, who's going. Most of the key people there will essentially be uh, career uh, sort of diplomats. Trig Talley, obviously, is going to be the chief negotiator. Tom Shannon will, will head the delegation. Um, we uh, understand that um, in some of the areas, such as transparency and so on, um, there's no reason to expect um, any change to the uh, positive approach that the U.S. has taken in the past. Um, so we don't know, uh, you know, whether 
administrator Pruitt is coming. It's on his diary, but I uh, don't. Uh, generally speaking, he's looking whether or not there's an event that he might participate in. But we certainly don't know uh, whether he is. So we don't we don't anticipate any great fireworks. Quite frankly, um, uh, we all know the people that are going, and you do too. Um, and uh, these are people that will try and do a sort of uh, a thorough and probably relatively low-key uh, job there. And forgive me, you said uh, COP is on Pruitt's diary. How do you know that? Well, it's, I mean, his staff say that, you know, when you ask them, is he going, well, it's, you know, it's possible. So we don't know he's on his I don't mean he's on his diary physically. I mean, he's aware and it's, he's not said no. Okay. So, um, so, uh, but, but, you know, in the past, when a political player turned up, the, the head of delegation and the chief negotiator basically continued to play the role. So when John Kerry turned up, you know, Todd Stern was still the one that was, uh, if you like, leading things. So generally, if, he, if, he, if a p- political person were to turn up, it would be for an event. It wouldn't be in order to seize the floor and, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, shake the roof kind of thing. <clears throat> Great. Thanks for the question, Lisa. Should we go to the next question, operator? Our next question comes from Marlu Hood. Your line is now open. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Can you hear me? Yep. Loud and clear. Hi, Marlu. Great. Thank you. Um, I guess this question, uh, particularly for for Andrew, and I just uh, wanted to ask you, if if you look at the political effort that was needed to seal the deal uh, for COP21 in Paris, um, what is your sense of how that might compare to the political effort that will be needed to make to the, the emissions reductions commitments uh, needed by 2020 to close the emissions gap? Is it going to be a harder push even than Paris was, really, is my question. Andrew, you might want to start that, and we could ask Paula to come in as well. I think it's uh, different in nature. Um, the... Getting the Paris deal was required incredibly heavy lifting at the sort of political level, if you like. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we've never seen anything quite like that before. Um, uh, and the kind of relationship that President Obama had with Xi Jinping was very much part of that. And I think we all know the roles that others played. Getting to Peking now is a little bit different. It, it actually, uh, it's, it's whether or not the um, key decision makers in India um, are reinforced in their view they could get to 100 gigawatts of solar energy kind of thing. So it's, it, in a way, it's moved from those who have to negotiate to those who have to put real money um, and change real policies. And so to some extent, it's, um, it's, it's back to the sort of the narrative. I mean, most of the countries in the world are not going to do this if it involves losing a lot of jobs and a lot of growth. And that's why the, um, the remarkable new insights that have come out, that actually, um, you know, when Prime Minister Modi says, you know, I know my predecessor was going to 20 gigawatts of solar by 2020, I'm going to go to 100 gigawatts by 2022. That statement is based upon an extremely modern understanding of disruptive change and what it could do. Because what essentially he was saying was, this is actually not your grandfather's approach to climate change. This is a new economy out there. And I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm stressing the scale of it because I want everyone to understand there are going to be tens of, 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 uh, of, of thousands of people, millions of people working in this sector. There's going to be hundreds of factories. There's going to be new technology. In other words, that psychological switch. So in a way, it's more to do with that, quite frankly, than it is to do with whether ministries of foreign affairs are going to feel that they're in the right place. We are, um, I mean, we're, we're quite encouraged by, by some um, uh, countries. I mean, China is still playing a very valuable role, um, although obviously this year the introduction of the cap and trade is not going to be quite as wholesome um, and complete as we'd hoped. So, so there's a, I mean, there's a lot to watch right now. <clears throat> Great. Thank you, Andrew. And I think Paola's going to uh, come in briefly on this question as well, so I'll turn it to Paola for a minute. Um, thanks. I, I think um, Andrew has really hit the nail on the head. So let me simply ask that we're also right now in, a, in an era of what I would call distributed leadership. And what we need is leadership by many countries and by many businesses and by many states and many cities, which is what we're seeing. And that kind of momentum was very clearly evidenced in very high political um, gambles or uh, political moments with high political stakes is what I mean, such as the G7, which turned into a G6 statement, the G19, uh, which again reinforced climate action. So we're really seeing unstoppable momentum stepping up, not just with economic capital, but also with political capital to reinforce the iconic nature of Paris. And we have, remember, this is the first COP ever led by a small island developing state. And the moral leadership of the Climate Vulnerable Forum, of those states that are already reeling under the impacts of climate change, as Christina described, are also very decisive players in keeping that momentum forward. And they, for example, have signed up to targets of 100% renewable. This is really about, as we were saying, everybody stepping up and all hands on deck. Great. <clears throat> Thanks. Thanks for the question. Let's go to the next question. Please. So I think we have to move on to the next question. Thanks, Marla. We can sure. follow up afterwards okay. if you need. All righty. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jeffrey Lane. Your line is now open. Oh, hi. Hi, Andrew. Um, Lisa took my question not for the first time, but um, can I follow up a bit? Have we heard anything about America trying to renegotiate the, um, the Paris Agreement? And Trump mentioned in many that he was putting out. Um, our, um, our understanding is that... Um, when they talk about renegotiation, uh, they really mean um, their own NDC. Um, right. Their opinion um, has been uh, that um, their NDC um, uh, was going to hurt their economy. Now, of course, they are perfectly mm -hmm. um, allowed to uh, adjust their NDC. Um, at the G7 Environment Ministers meeting, um, in Bologna, um, which I was at, uh, Scott Pruitt sort of made that mm. point. Um, uh, uh, there is, uh, when asked, so are there elements of the actual core agreement that you want to reopen? There is, to my knowledge, nothing that's been said that is specific at all in that area. But they can uh, change their NDC unilaterally if they want, can't they? Uh, yes, Paula, they, they would have to resubmit, is that correct? Yeah. But yes. But nobody to say them nay, nobody certifies it or anything? Uh, no, no. 
Paula, do you want to comment on that? Um, I think that the at the core of this is, is as Andrew says, the NDC, but um, their NDC, and um, obviously uh, the intent and the spirit of Paris is upward progression of ambition, but uh, countries can uh, submit whatever NDCs yeah. um, they, um, they consider in their uh, political, economic, technical realities. Um, however, I would also uh, note that the U.S. has signaled um, um, potential openings. They have um, alluded to the possibility of reconsidering if there's something along the lines of a better deal. Nobody really understands what that means. But there are, I think, some very nuanced and weak, if you will, but there have been some signals, I would say, of a possibility that um, there could be course corrections in the years to come. Okay. Thank you, Jeffrey, for the uh, question. Let's go to the next question, please. Our next question comes from Carl Matheson. Your line is now open. Uh, thank you. Um, Andrew, uh, you mentioned that you've got uh, a report coming out about the um, sort of cumulative actions of the states, and without wanting to ask you to like, sort of preempt the findings of that, um, more generally, uh, is, is US federal policy, would you say it's irrelevant to uh, the direction of the U.S. carbon reductions, and um, and just as a, a second question, if you forgive me, um, Paula, you mentioned uh, that there needed to be some central point, position points defined uh, in the rule book. Could you sort of just expand on that and talk through it a little bit? Thank you. Great. <clears throat> just before you answer, um, uh, uh, I should have mentioned earlier we have two additional uh, experts here at WRI who are on the line. One is Kevin Kennedy. He's the deputy director of our U.S. Uh, climate program here at WRI, and we also have Yamid Dagnet, who works in our international climate team. So two additional voices. I think the first one, um, Andrew, I don't know if you want to answer, if you would like to defer that over to Kevin, who's working closely on our, our U.S. work specifically, and then Paolo can come in after that. Well, why doesn't Kevin say a word, and I might add? <clears throat> so Kevin, okay. so this is Kevin Kennedy, who works on our U.S. climate team. Kevin. Yes, and the report that Andrew mentioned is actually one uh, that will be coming out from America's Pledge. Uh, the World Resources Institute and Rocky Mountain Institute have been doing a lot of the analytic work for that. Um, Andrew may have said it was coming out this weekend. It's actually the weekend of the COP. Um, so November 11th will be the release date with uh, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg and California Governor Jerry Brown uh, there as the uh, folks who launched America's Pledge. and. In that report, we're not looking specifically at the question of how far the uh, non-federal actions will get on emissions. Um, that will be part of phase two work that we do next year. But a lot of what we will be doing is documenting the real commitments that have been made over the course of this year for continued and expanded uh, action by states and cities and businesses and others, um, and also documenting a lot of the specific actions that have been taken through the years that have contributed to climate action in the United States, those non-federal actors, and the underlying economic trends, uh, things like you know, changes in the electricity sector that are very much built into, you know, baked into the system at this point. Um, so there will be a lot of very good information in that report. In terms of, you know, part of what we see as we think about the types of actions that have been taken to date. Uh, at the non-federal level, we always knew that there was going to be a lot of additional work needed to meet the U.S. NDC in the years ahead. The non-federal actions will help on that um, and will help make up some of the ground that the uh, 
reversals by the Trump administration are likely to sort of make the, the task more difficult. Um, so non-federal action will help maintain some momentum. We're hopeful that continued momentum on the non-federal level will really set the stage for federal re-engagement at a later stage. As you look to the long-term sort of targets, and quite likely even the 2025 target, you know, getting the U.S. federal government re-engaged as a positive force on this um, is going to be important. We think a lot of what the non-federal non actors are doing is helping demonstrate the importance from an economic as well as an environmental perspective for the sort of transition and action. So we're, we're hopeful we see a lot of good momentum, um, and, but there's still a lot of work to do. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Um, Andrew, did you want to weigh in on that one, or should we go to Paolo on the international side? Well, one of the purposes of this, this report is to precisely clarify who gets to make what decisions. And for the international um, audience, this is not written just for an international audience, it's written for a global audience, including the United States. Um, uh, but, but the international audience is actually quite important that we are able to really clarify uh, what, what the Constitution says, you know, and, and many around the world don't fully understand, you know, who makes what decisions on energy, for example, and the role of the states and utilities and um, uh, the, the public utility uh, commissions and so on, so too what authority the cities have and so on. So in a way, this, this phase one report is really clarifying who's doing what with what ambition, um, but it's, we, we really do want to make the point that Kevin made, that, um, uh, that, that a, fed, a federal government does have an obligation, and um, uh, it, it simply can't uh, wash its hands of this issue. And one of the things, um, back to uh, Jeffrey's uh, question about sort of the storyline from the current administration, there is a hint at the moment that the administration may uh, increasingly tell the story that actually um, we're demonstrating what we always believe because America is the place where there's so much initiative at the subnational level, especially in the private sector, that actually we're going to address climate change without us at the federal level having to do anything, which of course is what we sort of believe. Um, uh, and, and of course that would be profoundly wrong and it's really important that we, uh, whilst clearly there is dynamism, Clearly, there's a fabulous role for the subnational level, and we're incredibly exhilarated by what's happening, as Kevin just said. I mean, it's, it's remarkable the kind of the backbone that is being shown right now, and it's a great blessing, actually, to the world, the way some of these subnational leaders are acting. But that doesn't mean that we can, um, we can assume no needed role for the federal government. Great. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Andrew. Let's go to Paula on, the, uh, on, on some more details on the rule book, at least. Well, what's needed right now is to uh, make good progress so that the rules and procedures can be finalized by COP24. And these are rules and procedures around transparency, around reporting, around review, around compliance, and around regular communications on NDC commitments. Um, why don't I ask Yamid, who is uh, one of our leads in the international negotiations, if she would like to provide a little bit more uh, insight into these five areas. Thank you, and good morning, good, afternoon, good evening, uh, everyone. So yes, indeed, what we call the Paris World Book is a package um, of elements that will help uh, countries and the rest of the world or the actors uh, to move into the right direction and fulfill the ambition of the Paris Agreement. So this includes a transparency framework made of you know, the reporting and review system, 
but also uh, what makes this Paris Agreement unique, the ambition mechanism also called global stocktake, and then making sure that it is credible and also facilitative. There's also a mechanism called uh, set up to help countries um, implement and also um, implement their uh, requirements and also to uh, promote compliance. Um, I think uh, Christina already mentioned and Paula that in addition to this, we need some clarity on how countries are going to communicate also their uh, NDCs every five years. And it includes components not only on mitigation, but how also they're going to strengthen their uh, resilience. Um, so all, uh, in addition to that, there's also how countries are going to cooperate better uh, in, the, in the next few years uh, in using market or non-market mechanism and in a way uh, to ensure that a ton is a ton, um, that uh, we don't count uh, twice um, uh, the, 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 the support or uh, the emissions that is um, uh, being reduced. Um, that's basically uh, we're doing everything in a fair and robust manner. So that's going to be definitely uh, part of the conversation, and uh, we need to make sure uh, that this journey um, secure uh, some improvements. We know that a lot of countries are starting from different stages of development, and therefore I think the stake is to make sure that everybody come on board and find ways to do this effectively and uh, in a fair manner. And I would say that the BRI is uh, going to uh, release two papers uh, on how to do that on the transparency framework, so a paper on review, a paper on reporting. And this is part of a series that will culminate next year with a package of what this Paris School book is going to look like. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Yamid. And to our other experts, operator, let's go to the next question, please. We have Jin Chimnik. Your line is now open. Hi, um, getting back to sort of the political element of, of Vaughn, um, is there any trepidation that, uh, you know, a bunch of Democratic senators and governors and mayors showing up and, and you know, using the, the U.S. Center, Senate, uh, sorry, Senate there, is, is going to make this seem like a political issue a little bit more and kind of give the White House a bit of a target to say, well, look, these are still Democrats making all these promises to the rest of the world? Is, is that a concern at all? And and if if it is, you know, are you communicating at all with with these guys uh, to sort of say, hey, be careful about some of the messaging? Are you there? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're here. Thanks, Jean. Well, obviously, uh, U.S. senators uh, don't take their talking points from us. They 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 have their own uh, uh, messaging. So so we won't go into that. But um, on the broader dynamics, Andrew, do you want to come in, or maybe Kevin, on sort of. Um, Thoughts on on uh, on these different voices who we may hear from at COP? Well, there, there certainly will be um, leaders that are talking about the role of the subnational and the private sector, and um, I think that is uh, that is going to be broadly welcomed by um, by uh, by those who are there. And as I was saying before, I don't think that in and of itself is inconsistent with um, the Trump administration saying, there you go, we were right, that actually um, 
actually we do have a very dynamic um, subnational. So I, I don't think that would be a problem. Um, I, I also, if senators were to say, look, we believe that uh, there needs to be federal uh, you know, engagement as part of uh, tax reform, um, it's clear that we ought to be taxing things that are bad, like congestion and pollution, and not taxing things that are good, like um, jobs and incomes and profits. Um, uh, you know, so I, I but, but I don't, I don't anticipate. I mean, I, I don't know, Kevin. You might have some thoughts. I don't anticipate this becoming a major, um, uh, a, a major issue. I mean, I, I could certainly see that some right-wing media might enjoy doing some vignettes of, uh, of uh, <laughs> you know, Democrats sort of saying things, but I, I, I don't personally think this is. Um, something to worry about hugely. <clears throat> and this is Kevin. I think just uh, Andrew covered it very well. One thing that I think is useful to keep in mind as well is as you look at how climate change plays out as an issue more at the local level where you have mayors and other local leaders having to deal with the very real climate impact that they're dealing with these days, the partisanship is much less uh, marked in, in those areas where, where folks don't have the, um, the uh, ability just to rely on ideology but have to deal with the real uh, impacts that are happening on the ground. There's a broader recognition in many areas, uh, you know, for example, South Florida, where you know, there's a very real bipartisan effort to deal with the climate change and sea level rise, and that's true in many other parts of the country. So we think is, you know, this becomes sort of more broadly understood that you know, we're hopeful that we can get past the partisanship and sort of deal with the real issues on the ground. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for the question, Gene. Shall we go to the next question, operator? Our next question comes from John Cisiano. Your line is now open. Uh, hi, guys. Is it fair to say that the, um, the reports that you're putting out with the, in collaboration with the Rocky Mountain Institute, are those, I mean, are, are you trying to, I mean, you kind of, I know you're trying to be careful because you don't want to discourage the states, but you're basically saying um, that the state effort is all well and good, but we need, don't get this wrong, we need the U.S. government to say it's committed to Paris or to um, to the targets. I mean, you're basically saying that's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a replacement. The states and the subnational efforts are not a replacement for U.S. commitments, and we would like to see that reversed. Is that fair? Uh, I, I mean, I, <clears throat> this is Michael. I'll turn to Kevin, I, but I don't think you should uh, – I think we should put it in our own words rather than have you say what we're trying to say, and then also the report. Well, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that the, I, I want you to respond to what, what's going on there. Sure. I was just, I was just I'm not, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to force my opinion on you. I, I want you to explain it. Good. So we'll explain it, but I also wanted just to mention that the report comes out on the 11th and that America's Pledge is led by Governor Brown and Mike Bloomberg. So as far as America's Pledge, you know, the broader messaging probably should be directed to them. We can talk about what our analysis uh, is, is, is trying to do and how Thank that you. plays into this, this subnational effort. But I just wanted to clarify, our role is to do the I see. Work. I see. Thank you. Yeah. Kevin, yeah. do you want to just comment briefly on this? And just very briefly, I mean, the a lot of what we are seeing and a lot of what we want to emphasize is that 
the non-federal action actually can play a very important role going forward. And part of what we're trying to do is provide, you know, to some degree initially with this uh, phase one report and as the, the project goes on increasingly a roadmap for helping cities and states and businesses and others find ways of, you know, the ones that are saying, yes, we're committed, we want to do more, here's a roadmap to help you figure out how to do more. And so to encourage and build up the momentum over time um, is going to be critical with or without the federal government involvement. So, you know, we're, you know, the, the underlying message in many ways, and again, as Michael says, you know, the, for the report itself will be coming out in a few weeks. Um, it'll be, you know, Michael Bloomberg and Jerry Brown uh, at, the, at the launch event. But, you know, we are looking to encourage the states and cities and others to do more over time because this is a critical issue. It was already going to be challenging. Um, and, it, you know, the, the urgency is very real and the ability and need to step up is very real as well. Okay. Yeah, could I, I just, could I just add, Michael? Um, yeah, I think your characterization, the tone wasn't quite right. Um, uh, the, the tone should be that the I'm, – I'm talking to the questioner, not, not to Kevin. Um, <laughs> the, the, the tone should be, um, look, the subnational level actually is playing a totally dynamic role in a way that, quite frankly, we would not have predicted five years ago at all. I mean, we're seeing – amazing commitments. We're seeing technology driving down costs and so on. Um, and actually, to some significant extent, um, yes, the subnational level can compensate and is compensating for a total lack of leadership at the federal level. And we, we, we're trying to, we will document that. So it's, it's, it's uh, you know, 80% is of the messaging is this is actually astonishing. And Americans should know this. And, and, and states and utilities and private sector are not doing this because someone's telling them to. They're doing it because it's good for their citizens, it's good for the economy and so on. That's an incredibly important message. So, but then, sort of, then the, 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 if you like, the, the, the caveat is nobody, though, at the end of the day, should think this lets the federal government off the hook. So, so in other words, it's, it's uh, the balance see. of those messages that's really important to get right. <clears throat> Great. Thank you for that point and thank you again for the question and we're happy to talk more about it especially uh, once the report comes out on the 11th so thank you again for the question so go to the next question operator our next question comes from Chris Mehatch your line is now open yeah hi uh, Andrew you were very optimistic about uh, the negotiations however um, in the past years the dynamic of the negotiation was carried by the US together with China now the US is kind of us out. How do you see the leadership for the negotiations? Will this be China, Europe, or will this be some more like uh, chaotic leadership? And then one brief question for Paula. Um, you seem to put a lot of trust in the government of Poland, but if you know European politics, you know that uh, Poland is like the climate lacquered number one in Europe. Um, does you put your trust into the wrong country? <laughs> okay, great. Good, good questions. And uh, well, we're, we're, we're running a little short on time, Andrew, so let's, uh, we covered some of this ground, but Andrew, why don't you go ahead and then we'll jump to Paolo. Um, I don't think I was so optimistic about the negotiations. I mean, they, they have a job to do this year. It's fairly technical. 
Um, you know, and I think Leo talked about finance. Um, uh, Christina talked about adaptation. Those are those are very important decisions. Um, and then there's a lot of stuff on the rule book, as uh, as Paula and Yamid was saying. Um, so it, it's sort of there's a workmanlike job to be done. Um, we are hoping that um, the sort of the old leadership from some of the uh, Europeans will be there. We are we are impressed with uh, China's. Um, uh, you know, statements that have come out, and we've seen a sort of a desire to look. We signed this thing two years ago. Um, we still got some work to do to clarify what needs to happen. Uh, we agreed that there was going to be, uh, you know, a consultative dialogue um, uh, on on the NDCs next year. We need to agree on the rules. So there will be the normal kind of, you know, late through the night kind of, you know, in the conference rooms arguing with each other. I mean, that that is you know, always happens and it's entirely appropriate. So I don't expect there'll be some, you know, brilliant leadership, uh, but uh, but uh, we're, we're, we're sort of hopeful that there will be enough progress uh, to keep the momentum going. Great. Thanks, um, <laughs> Thanks Andrew. Thanks. Good, um, good question. Um, let me just say that um, I cannot stress enough how important and decisive U.S. leadership was to get the Paris deal done, but we've been on this journey for 23 years, and there's been ups and downs, and there's been very decisive moments in the negotiations when it hasn't particularly been U.S. leadership that's carried us over the line. Um, even COP1, the one who carried us over the line was Angela Merkel, who was then the Minister of Environment. And for those of you who are in COP1, you'll recall that uh, it set the motion of these very late-night um, and difficult negotiations, and then also a lot of brinkmanship at the end. And so there's been many others that have been, many other countries that have stepped into leadership in different moments. Um, and that's exactly what we're seeing right now. I think Fiji is uh, has a moral imperative and a moral legitimacy that no other COP presidency, I think, has had. Um, they are at the forefront of climate impacts, and they are taking this uh, presidency very seriously. And as I say, really, by calling the first stock take ever under the Paris Agreement, the Tanaloa Dialogue, they're showing very decisive leadership and a way forward. With regards to Poland, I was not being optimistic, as you, um, to, to paraphrase you, I was calling and saying that we need for Poland to maintain the kind of leadership and vision that uh, Fiji is putting in place. So we do call on Poland to maintain leadership. We do call on Poland to be a neutral COP presidency that will help steer both the Paris Rule Book as well as the, the Tanaloa Dialogue, which used to be the facilitative dialogue, to not just the safe harbor, but to the most ambitious landing spot possible, because we are looking at 2018 as a foundational year for that arc of ambition that we need to get us over the line, not just in 2020, but to progressively decrease emissions so that we stay well under two degrees and are on a clear trajectory for 2050. That's what's at stake right now, and that's what Poland has to step up to. Great. Thank you, Paula. Um, I think we have time for just one more question, operator. So uh, this will probably be our last one as we're coming to the bottom of the hour. Yes, we have Rosen Skirbel. One moment, please, as I open your own line. Rosen Skirbel, your line is now open. Can you hear me? Hi, Roseanne. Yes, we can hear you. Thank you very much. And I think this is a fitting last question. You talk about leadership and momentum from cities and states and the private sector, but what do you see as the role of civil society in moving this agenda forward, specifically communities of faith that have powerful coalitions, uh, global coalitions? 
Andrew Steer, would you like to take that? Um, yes, uh, we, at least I believe, I can't implicate the whole of WRI in this, um, I believe at the end of the day we will succeed or fall, uh, succeed or fail in our efforts on climate change less uh, according to um, policies and more according to people's hearts. Um, and the reason people change uh, their behavior is actually because they believe it's a good thing. This year's Nobel uh, Prize in Economics is yet another indication that that's the way that the behavioral science is, uh, is moving. Um, it, around the world, communities of faith are playing an incredibly important role. And, you know, how tragic it is that in this country, um, you know, part of Christendom here is absolutely in the wrong place. And one of the um, really encouraging things right now is that in, within the evangelical movement, and I'm sure you're much more aware of this than, than I, within the evangelical movement, we're seeing a new generation of young people who are not willing to take their fathers and grandfathers' um, wrong readings of the scriptures. And they're actually um, going to, I think, uh, change the face of, um, of the politics over time of, of climate change in this country. Um, I do believe that um, there is a, 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 a huge opportunity for, for uh, communities of faith. I think the Pope has done an amazing job. I think that played actually a very valuable role in getting us to where we need to get to. I, I, I wish there were a little more muscularity, quite frankly, in some, in some areas. Um, and, uh, and let's hope that that will, uh, that will happen. <clears throat> Great. <clears throat> thank you, Andrew. And again, thank you uh, to everyone on the call today. Again, a recording of this call will be available online afterwards um, that you can listen to again if you'd like. And you can follow up with me or my colleagues here. We can put you in touch with the experts who are on the call today or any one of our other experts who will be traveling to Bonn. Um, thanks again, and have a good day, evening, and good night. Thank you. And that concludes today's conference. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.